the following Jesus series the, that we started back in February. Uh, hopefully you're following along with this. It's been a, a, a real blessing to my heart as God has worked in my life. What we have done is we have taken the life of Jesus from all four Gospels, put them in chronological order, and have been preaching through them. We can't do it exhaustively. We can't look at every aspect of them. But hopefully you're getting a sweep of Jesus' life in ministry. And uh, one of the parts that uh, is very familiar in the Bible, you know, there's some parts of the Bible, if I just mention one or two things, for many of you, the whole story will just flood back into your mind. For instance, if I were to mention a large fish or a whale, what would you be thinking of with just that much information? Jonah and the whale, and he went in this large fish. Or if I were to mention a great flood and a big boat, you'd all be heading over to Lantau Island, right? You'd be thinking of Noah and the ark. And I know Sherry's already read the account but if I were to mention five loaves of bread and two fish, you'd immediately start thinking of how Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 plus people. And so that's where we're going to start today. We're going to look at the entirety of uh, chapter 6. I've had opportunity over this month to uh, listen and uh, sitting in airports, listen to sermons on this, this passage of Scripture, and do study, and, and hear things. There are some very good pastors that have spent as many as six, seven, eight sermons on this chapter. I'm going to do it in one. There's a lot, a lot in here. But I see a flow in John chapter 6 that I think takes us to a point that confronts our lives with what God wants to do. And so let's, let's kind of follow this. First of all, a few things that you can get from your Bible. By the way, I hope you have a Bible, paper Bible or electronic Bible. But you know, as I was thinking about the electronic Bibles, they're a little hard to, to see the flow of things, but, so hopefully you have a paper Bible someplace. And I also realized, oh my, all the temptations that are in that phone. You know, when I was in first or second grade, I earned a Bible because I said memory verses in Sunday school. And I got my black cover King James Bible. Any of you have any of those? Why King James? That's all there was back then. But when I would get bored in the sermons... Not sure that that happens anymore. But I used to leaf through my Bible and study the maps because I had color maps in the back of my Bible. And I was fascinated by the journeys of the Apostle Paul or Jesus. And so when my mind would wander, I was learning things. And oh my goodness, what's in my phone? All those other things that your mind can wander on. Discipline yourself 
during the sermon times to focus on God's Word. And don't let the other temptations um, take you from what God's trying to do. But I want you to see in John chapter 6, hopefully in some way, you can look at the entirety of John chapter 6 so you can, you can kind of see the whole thing. First of all, it's John chapter 6. Does anybody know how many chapters there are in the book of John? Twenty-one. So John chapter 6, in my mind, and not quite a third of the way through the book. So we're probably towards the beginning of Jesus' life, right? You know, you, you see that. But as I mentioned with the communion time, we can tell where Jesus is in his three-year life by the Passovers that he goes to. And if you look at John chapter 6, verse 4, it says the Jewish Passover feast was near. And so you need to do a little research and, and looking there, and we find out that this is actually Passover number 3. Jesus really only has about one more year of ministry at this point. Because John loads up his gospel with a whole lot of things that happened in that last week before the crucifixion. And so we find out that what's going on, since we know that this is now completing the second year of his three-year ministry, there's a lot of things that have happened. Jesus has gathered disciples who have experienced him. The crowds, the people, the public, and the Jewish leaders have seen Jesus do all kinds of miracles and ministries. And Jesus is actually quite popular at this point. And so we, we see that going on. And as you look at John chapter 6, it starts off with the feeding of the 5,000. There are essentially four sections here in John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. And by the way, that was probably a whole lot more than 5,000 because it says 5,000 men. So do the math however you want to do it. I've heard numbers anywhere from 12,000 to 25,000 if you add the children and the women who are there also. And then following that, and we'll look a little bit more at the feeding of the 5,000. Following that, we have Jesus walking on the water. Following that, a section on Jesus being the bread of life. And following that, the responses that people give to Jesus because of the things that are taught here in this section. In your bulletin, there are some sermon notes. You can follow those. They may be helpful to you. Um, but first of all, we want to talk about the feeding of the 5,000, the part that Sherry read, the first 15 verses of this chapter in John. By the way, this is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The only miracle. Now, what does that mean? That means that all four Gospel writers were inspired by God to include this, and tell us something about Jesus because of this miracle. There's no ranking of these miracles of, oh, they must be really important and absolutely happened 
if all four writers include them, and the miracles that only one writer included, they're of lesser value. No, no, that, that's not the right way to look at it. God uses these different writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to tell us about Jesus, and together they give us a, a more complete picture, a fuller picture of who Jesus is. But it's interesting that this is the only miracle that all four Gospels include. Think about it. This miracle did not involve a solitary life that was healed or had a demon taken away. Or a family that had a family member healed. Or even the disciples who saw Jesus walking on the water. This miracle involved 5,000 plus people. The gospel writers were bold enough, all four gospel writers were bold enough to include this passage in their account of Jesus, which could easily discredit their writing. Because there's now five or 25,000 people out there that the gospel writers are saying, look at this man, look at this person of Jesus, and who he is and what he did. He made lunch for everyone. And now some, in, in modern times, some people say, well, we need to spiritualize these things. You know, Jesus didn't really feed 5,000 people. I mean, who could do that? And so, I mean, this is just, they thought, they got some spiritual food. Now, if I told you that I was going to take you all out to eat, you're going to get a good meal, you're going to get your fill, there's going to be basketfuls of leftovers, and I'll give you some good spiritual food. Would any of you say that I cheated you? That I misrepresented what I was doing? You see, by the gospel writers saying these things, they put Jesus out there before the people that actually saw him. And they ate to their full. And one of the things that John is saying here is Jesus is someone who's different. He can do miracles. He can do things that are beyond the norm, beyond what can usually happen. Now, one of the things that I got to do, and I was just thinking about this as I was preparing this message, one of the things that I got to do in America was I got to go to a Major League Baseball game. Because my daughter lives in Baltimore, and if anybody knows, that's where the Baltimore Orioles play. And my team, the Philadelphia Phillies, were playing in Baltimore. Now, Baltimore was not doing too good, and in their 40-some thousand-seat stadium, was only half full. 20,000 some people there. Easy to get. And by the way, my team won. Um, they're currently, as of yesterday morning, in first place for anybody that cares about baseball here in this part of the world. But I thought about that. 20,000 people in that stadium. What did it take to feed them? Vendor after vendor after place to buy food and you could go here or they would bring the food to you at your seats. 
hundreds of people in dozens of places to feed 20,000 people. What an accomplishment Jesus did with his disciples. You need to see what's going on there. And so I present this to you because John presents it to us as one of the ways that we can know who Jesus is. And there's lots of lessons you can learn. There's, 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 as you read a passage of Scripture, I'd encourage you to read it to find the messages, the things that you can learn from here. You know, when Jesus involves us in ministry, He takes the time to involve us in that ministry. If you give something to Jesus, He can multiply it beyond anything you could imagine. And we find people following Jesus for various reasons. That there's all kinds of lessons that could be learned from this passage. But I want to continue on with the story so that you can see what Jesus is doing and what he's, where he's going. Jesus and the disciples had had a long period of ministry. They were tired. And so they wanted to go to the other side of the lake for a period of rest. And as you move on in, in John, starting at verse 16, you see that the disciples leave. There's a storm. And then Jesus joins them in the storm. It tells us in the book of Matthew that Jesus walked to them on the water. And it's also only the book of Matthew that tells us that Peter said, if that's really you, tell me to get out of the boat. And he did. Until he took his eyes off Jesus. And then he had to trust Jesus to raise him back up. But you see another miracle, another story, another account of who Jesus is. Not only can he feed 20,000 people, he can overcome the natural forces of the wind, the waves, the storms, the fact that gravity usually causes us to sink on water. But I think there's something else going on here because where the feeding of the 5,000 involved thousands of people, how many people were there that knew that Jesus walked on the water? Now the crowds kind of figured it out later. Wait, we saw one boat go out, 12 guys get in it, and it comes to the other side, and... 13 in it. Where did this other guy come from? How did he get there? Um, so they kind of figured out. But in essence, this miracle was for Christ's followers. He knew that they were going to be facing a time. They've walked with him for days, weeks, months now. Seeing the miracles that are going on. And Jesus knows that he's going to the cross. And these men are going to need to walk with me to the cross. Things are going to get tough. And so I just want to suggest to you that as God takes you on, there's going to be times when He works in a special way in your life just to confirm again who He is and prepare you for what's going on. Jesus, in one sense, sent his followers, his closest followers, these people that he must love tremendously, he sent them out into a storm. 
You ever face that? Somehow we get the idea, oh God, I love you. Everything is good. It must always go good for me. But we find Jesus, he had to know that there was a storm coming. He had to know what was going to happen. He watches his disciples get into the boat. Why would he do that? I think one reason is because he wanted to reinforce their faith and have them ready for the job that he was going to send them out to do in such a short time. And so we get through two miracles here. Feeding 5,000 people, Jesus and Peter walking on water. It's incredible who this Jesus is. And so now I want to move on to starting at verse 25 where John includes some teaching that the other Gospels don't include. You see, Mark was probably written first and then Matthew and Luke and there was a, a little bit of time until the book of John was written. I have this picture and, and, and I don't really know if, 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 it's, if it's accurate. But John is an older man by the, time he's or by the time he's writing the book of John. And I think he's trying to fill in some of the meaning, some of the things that he has pondered on, that God has worked in his life on as he's thought about these things. And so he includes, he remembers the teaching that Jesus gave about being the bread of life. He connects it here with this story after feeding 5,000 people. And so I want to just walk through this a little bit and, and see what's going on because what I find is um, starting... I've got to get myself um, where I am here, verse 25. Um, when they found him, the crowd, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they said, Rabbi, Jesus, how did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you were looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves of, and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that, that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. We find the first of three questions. The crowd gives them three questions. They're trying to clarify. And I went back to John chapter 3 and John chapter 4 where Jesus worked through questions with Nicodemus and the woman at the well. And the crowd will ask a question and Jesus uses that to clarify the motives. It seems like they're coming. They want to know more about Jesus. And it comes to find out that they like the free lunch. They were really coming because maybe he'll do it again. Maybe let's see what he's going to do. And so Jesus clarifies the question. But they say, when did you get here? And then they say, what must I do to do the works of God? And Jesus tells them again about this. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It's not Moses that gave you the bread, but it's my Father. You see, they were reminded of the manna during the Exodus. And they looked up to Moses as a great leader. 
Because he gave them manna. He gave them bread. And Jesus says, it's my father. It's my father. That's where it came from. And the work of doing God's will, what must I do? Is to receive the bread of God. Who is this bread? Jesus is focusing their questions on who he is. And then the third question comes in verse 30. They asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we will see it and believe you? What, he just fed 5,000 people and walked on water, healed a dozen people before that, and did a lot of other things. Now, which miracle are you going to give us so that we can believe on you? What more do we need? Don't focus on the miracle. Focus on the miracle giver. The one who provided it for us. Don't focus on the object. Focus on the one who gave the object. Our focus should be on God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He's trying to take this crowd from seeing the miracle to seeing Jesus. They're wondering what miracle he can give that would be greater than what Moses gave. And so we have these three questions that the crowd gives. And I found this, in essence, three essentials that Jesus gives in this passage. And there seems to be some link to it. We'll we'll link them up later. But Jesus gets into his teaching where he says, I am the bread of life. This is the first of seven I am statements of, that John gives us. And once again, you can get a whole sermon series on these, on each one of them. There is the I am part, and then there's the, in this case, bread of life. Jesus does six other comparisons. Through these comparisons, we learn who Jesus is. The I am part should bring our minds back once again to the book of Exodus. When Moses was called to go back to his people and tell them that God had given him a message, Moses says, Who should I tell you? Who should I tell them is sending me? And he says, I am. God says, Tell them the I am that I am sent you. That's a little bit curious to me. The current living God, who one of his characteristics is that he exists, I am, he is the one who is sending you. And so Jesus uses that here to say, I am, I am connected with that experience in your history in the book of Exodus. I am God. People sometimes wonder, where does Jesus say he's God? Check out these seven references where he says, I am. He is referring to himself as God. This is what got him into trouble. The Jewish leaders knew what he was saying and took him to the cross because he was blaspheming. But he says, I am. He's connecting himself 
with God. And then there's the bread of life part. Now, bread's an important symbol. It was funny. Uh, as we were leaving Hong Kong, we were going to be gone for four weeks, Marianne said to me, how long do you think it will be until we get rice again? <laughs> Did we keep track? Because in our culture over there, it's more uh, bread or potatoes for the starch. I think if Jesus was saying this in Asia, he'd say, I am the rice of life. What he's referring to here is a staple, a part of our existence that is just so common. By the way, no place has steamed buns like Hong Kong. I don't know where that comes from, but nobody can beat that. Um, but Jesus is connecting himself with the essentials of life. The things that we do on a daily basis to sustain life. Bread. Eating rice. I found out you can do all kinds of things with rice flour. So the noodles and rice of our daily diet is what Jesus is comparing himself to. That staple that sustains life. Without it, we would not have life. And Jesus says in this passage, I am God who sustains life with my very being. I am as necessary to you as bread or rice. And then the third essential that I see here is I see Jesus saying, connecting all these things together and saying, for us to experience eternal life, we need the I am of God. We need the bread of life. And we need to come to Jesus. Look at verse 40. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes on Him shall have eternal life. Everyone who looks to the Son. Who's the Son? Jesus and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on that last day. So look at these essentials that Jesus is saying we need to have in our life. We need to know who God is. We need to have Him in our very being. We need to look to His Son for eternal life. And when it started clicking for me then, was when I saw the reactions of the people in John chapter 6 to this series of messages. Remember, it all kind of continues on. It takes a couple days. And Jesus is teaching them something. And I find that there are some responses to Jesus. If you look in John, uh, chapter 40, or John 6, verse 41, you find this thing says that they are grumbling. At this the Jews began to grumble about him. 
He said, I am the bread, and He came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, you know that carpenter over there, whose father and mother, we know mom and dad. How can He now say that He came down from heaven? There's this grumbling going on. And we don't do that, do we? There's no grumbling going on. I think, in essence, what's going on here is the people are saying, well, Jesus is just Joseph the carpenter's son. I'm at least as good as him. Why? You look at the people here in church. I can pick on Ron. I'm at least as good as Ron. If Ron's good enough to get into heaven, I surely should be good enough to get into heaven. I mean, God's grading on a curve, isn't he? They're trying to make excuses for where they are in their life. They're not saying, God, what do you want to do in my life? They're comparing themselves. Why, this Jesus, he just came down from Nazareth. His father was a carpenter, and now he's out here teaching us. There's 5,000 people getting fed, a lot of people listening to him. And they start grumbling about it. Sometimes that's to justify our own existence. One of the illustrations I used to give teenagers sometimes is, you know, sometimes it's easier to tear everyone else down than it is to work on your own life. You know, there could be a, a hillside of tall trees. And it takes years to become a tall tree. Years of growth, the drought, the rains, the heat. And finally you get a tall tree. And there's a wee little tree that got planted on that hillside. And it says, oh, I wish I could be the tallest tree on the hillside. I could make it the tallest tree in one day. Cut down the rest of them. <laughs> Did that tree have to struggle? Did that tree grow into maturity? Did that tree give fruit? Did that tree give lumber? Did that tree do whatever? No, but it's the tallest. So sometimes we can just grumble and complain about what God wants to do, cut down everything else, and all of a sudden, I look pretty good. We're going to look to see what Jesus has to say about that, but let's look at the next one. We find arguing in uh, verse 52. The Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus talks to them about some religious things and, and how they can have um, uh, drinking uh, his blood and his flesh and all that kind of stuff. And as I looked at that, I hear that common argument in our world today. Well, don't all religions lead the same place? I mean, they're all religious. They do their worship thing. They have their, their gods. And it's just that some people, you know, worship this god. Some people worship that god. And don't all the religions lead to the same place? If that is your thought, I challenge you to do two things. First of all, get to know the Jesus in the Bible. Know Jesus, know this God that's presented in the Bible. And then the second thing, compare that with any other 
religion in the world. And you'll see that the words of Ravi Zacharias become true. Instead of, aren't all religions essentially the same and superficially different? Ravi Zacharias says, no. All religions are superficially similar and essentially different. If you're going to get into grumbling, if you're going to get into arguing, look at the God of the Bible and who He is. And I find one other response, and we're going to go back then and look at each one of these again. I find one other response, and that's of His disciples who have been with Him for a period of time. Towards the end of the chapter, verse 67 Jesus says to the disciples, you don't want to leave me too. You see, a lot of the people had left. They found his teaching to be hard. And Simon Peter answered for the group and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? We have the words of eternal life. We know you. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Do you see how this response is different? It doesn't look within. It looks at who God is. That's the disciples' response. And so as you take this passage as a whole, I think Jesus is answering some of these responses. We're going to grumble and say, well, I'm as good as the next guy. And Jesus' response, I think, is, I am essential for your life. If that guy's eating the bread and you aren't, there's going to be a difference. You need to take the bread of life and make it as essential as your daily food. Aren't all gods the same? Can we argue about this? Can we complain? Isn't Jesus just a good teacher? Isn't he just someone that came upon the scene? You need to do something with Jesus' statement where he says, I am. Where he is God himself. What are you going to do with that claim? We can't argue anymore. We look at Jesus. At who he is. And that brings us to the point where believing is something is solid. It's something that we have trust in. We can believe and we can give the answer that, Lord, You are the Holy One of God because we know You. We know who You are. And so I want to ask you, what is your response to this miracle worker? This miracle worker that fed thousands of people with one small lunch. Is that just something that's crazy? Something that happened a long time ago? The people that actually experienced it knew that this Jesus was different from who He was. Are you going to argue about things? Or can you say, I know the I am that I am. I know God Himself.
Can you get to the point where Peter said, we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. That's the point of assurance where our salvation, where our belief in God becomes solid so that it becomes a launching pad for what God wants to do in our lives. Where does God want to send you? What does God want to do here in AIC? We need that firm foundation of the solid answer of knowing that Jesus is the Holy One of God. And what I want to leave you with is just this thought that as you think about the feeding of the 5,000, this whole passage of John chapter 6, remember that Jesus is the bread of life. You can put rice of life if you want. Jesus is the essential part of life. Without Him, you can't have eternal life, but I would dare say you can't live life the way God wants you to here on earth without Him. Jesus is that essential part of life. It's not just some show, oh, let's go feed 5,000 people. (coughs) It's that Jesus met the needs of those people. He can meet our needs too. So, remember that. Sometimes praying at mealtimes becomes a rote thing that we do and we wonder why we do it. I think it's a time to remind us of who God is. Remind us of who He is. And so as you go out for lunch today, remember, Jesus is as essential as that food that you're eating. He is essential to your life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for sending Your Son. We thank You for giving us these glimpses of His life. And here in this part, Jesus Himself says, I am. He is God. He is that bread of life. The one who is essential for us. There's not an option. We need Him. We're dependent upon Him. We can't live without Him. So Lord, I ask that You would guide us individually, may we know and experience you in a full and rich way. As a congregation, may we walk by faith because we have this solid foundation of Jesus Christ. I thank you in Jesus' name.